Welcome to Oxford. Uh, I gather some of you have been here before. I uh, actually recognize some, some faces from other courses uh, that the department has put on. Um, and uh, I'm sorry about the weather, but can't do anything. The buildings are pretty, anyway. Uh, you're, you're here to learn about research design and, and methods. Um, and so what I'm going to talk a bit about is um, what happens when treatments become available for which there is some evidence, but the evidence isn't that strong or it's inconclusive. Um, politics become at play, policy becomes at play, uh, and I'm going to talk about um, some of these issues and how uh, you're going to deal with them as you go out into the world and take what you've learned this week and apply it to your own practice or your own research or teaching. So I'm going to talk about how patients, commercial organizations, and researchers use this forum, YouTube, uh, to share experiences and opinions of a controversial theory and treatment for multiple sclerosis. And I'm going to talk about how people use this to do two things, to uh, generate evidence, and when I say that, I'm taking a very broad uh, definition of the word evidence. I'm going to talk about what I mean by that. Um, so there's that piece, and then there's also how people use this to uh, advocate and to promote policy agendas. I will start by just acknowledging my co-authors because uh, I worked with two great people on, on this study. Um, Fadila Mazandarani is a medical sociologist at Durham, uh, and John Powell works in the Department of Primary Care. We're going to spend the next 45 minutes talking about YouTube videos, so I'm going to start by showing you one of these videos. Okay. This is a patient with multiple sclerosis. And in this video, he's, uh, he's walking around his house. Okay. He's showing you that uh, due to this disease and due to the disabilities he has as a result of this disease, he's having trouble getting around in his foyer, basically. And I know this might sound banal, but this video has nearly 40,000 views. Okay. And you can see he's coming out into the front yard, and as he turns around, there's, there, there are words underneath um, that he's superimposed. And they're not typical patient words. The things like uh, hyper-responsive, ataxic gait. Okay. These are words that we associate with uh, clinical interactions rather than with uh, patients in particular. And the other thing this video shows that's going to be important as we talk is um, that this is the what we we'll call the pretreatment phase. So this is someone who's, uh, who's put together this video prior to having what uh, people have described as this liberation procedure. Now, this is after he's had the procedure. He's, again, walking around his house. Uh, and you can see, I can see, he's moving around a lot faster. Okay? Whether or not that is a result of the treatment is, is one thing, and we're going to talk a bit about, um, about that issue. But for now, what this is is a video of someone showing that uh, their perceived treatment effect is that they're a whole lot better after they've had this. Okay, a bit of background just to start. So multiple sclerosis is widely accepted today to be an autoimmune condition. Uh, it's a condition in which there's an aberrant immune response. It attacks the myelin sheath around central nervous system neurons. Uh, this is responsible for the speed of uh, uh, co conduction in, in the neurons. And what happens when you lose the myelin sheath is conduction becomes inhibited. And uh, there are uh, a whole host of symptoms that are then associated with uh, this um, impaired conduction. So things like 
sensory disturbances, trouble with vision, um, balance and bladder disturbances, loss of mobility as we saw. And there are also some uh, characteristic cognitive and emotional changes, which you can't see, but uh, people with multiple sclerosis um, have reported that they have these changes. I said MS is uh, widely accepted to be an autoimmune condition, but if we go back in the history, this wasn't actually the case. The first report of MS, the um, French neurologist Jean-Michel Charcot, uh, he of Charcot's triad and Charcot's pentad fame, uh, anyone who teaches medical students will have brought this up at 3 a.m. on the wards when trying to stump someone. Um, Charcot thought that this was a vascular disease. If we go a bit later, another, uh, another pathologist, again, continued to propose a bit of a change in theory, but still that it was a vascular disease. And we actually have to go about 70 years later until uh, the 1950s, when autoimmune uh, knowledge became uh, more widely available due to advances in technology, uh, that this autoimmune theory of MS etiology began to predominate. So that brings us to uh, 2009, in which an Italian physician who's a surgeon, uh, whose wife has MS, his name is Paolo Zamboni, and uh, he sort of brought back this vascular theory. He scanned a bunch of people with MS and thought that um, that blocked neck veins might be responsible for, uh, for MS pathology. And he called this CCSVI, called this chronic cerebrospinal venous insufficiency. And he suggested that if the problem is that the neck veins are blocked and that blood isn't able to get out of the head, um, that what you do is you unblock the veins. You use venous angioplasty, or what I'll call venoplasty. Um, of these two veins, they're predominantly affected by this condition, or so he, he described. Um, and he called this the liberation procedure. Okay? So what we have is, is nice new terms. We have CCSVI, we have liberation procedure. Um, and he said this might work. This might slow progression, might improve symptoms. And some of his initial reports suggested that people with MS were much more likely to have this condition. This is sort of what it looks like. It's done by um, uh, interventional radiologists uh, and to a lesser extent vascular surgeons. Um, on the left in the picture is the, uh, some uh, angioplasty images of, uh, <clears throat> uh, of the block neck vein at the start. And then on the right is the improved flow of contrast dye uh, after the veins have been opened. So I said earlier that you know, you're, you're here to learn about um, uh, research methods and study design. And, and I know what you're all thinking right now, which is that we need we need to know some things uh, before we can ascribe any of those improvements in that first video to, uh, to this theory of this treatment. And, and these are the two things we want to know. We, we, we want to know, are MS patients more likely to have block neck veins than those without MS? That's number one. Uh, and number two, if that is true, then uh, does it work? Is it effective at reducing frequency of attack, severity of symptoms? And I want to show you some of the evidence uh, that seeks to you know, try to explain these, these two issues. Um, I imagine you've been dealing with forest plots a little bit this week, so I can't help it to show you a forest plot. Uh, the British uh, physician and author Ben Goldacre, with whom you might be familiar, author of Bad Pharma, likes to call these blobograms. I much prefer blobogram. I would suggest using that instead. It makes them sound cooler somehow. Um, 
This is a, a, a forest plot from a systematic review of the relationship between MS and block neck veins. What we see is that this first study I was talking, uh, I was telling you about, Zamboni's study, all of the patients in the MS group and none of the patients in the control group, the healthy controls, had uh, block neck veins. And this gives us an odds ratio of uh, just under 60,000. I'll let you sit with that one for a second. If we go below, this is MS patients versus controls with other neurologic diseases, things like Guillain-Barre syndrome. Again, zero of the controls and all of the MS patients have, uh, have block neck veins. And that gives us an odds ratio of just under 20,000. So the overall shows a significant relationship. But you're not here to be able to see that a, an odds ratio of 60,000 is unusual. You could probably have done that before you came this week. I suspect you may have gone here. An I squared of 89% is significant heterogeneity. What, these, what this means is that these studies aren't actually that much like each other. And in fact, if you take it a step further and you remove the big Zamboni study from this, uh, from this meta-analysis, you find that the relationship breaks down. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, does it work? Well, a group of people very sensibly took um, uh, what Sarian Chalmers, the, one of the founders of the Cochrane Collaboration, described as, uh, as, as, um, as the cardinal rule of research, which is that uh, all research should begin and end with a systematic review. So they did a systematic review, and they showed at the bottom there uh, that there were no high-quality studies proving whether or not this worked. Here's a low-quality study, one of Zamboni's early studies, in which he took, it's basically a case series of patients, and uh, he said that at 18-month follow-up, uh, twice as many patients who had the treatment were free of relapse. So that sounds pretty good, okay? That sounds pretty good. Uh, it's not high-quality evidence, but it's something. What I'm trying to show you here is that there's evidence for, there's evidence against. To figure out some of these issues, it's actually quite complicated. You need, you need some pretty advanced knowledge to be able to go through that and to see, for example, oh, but look at the heterogeneity. Um, and now we're going to take it further to something that happened a few weeks ago. There was a small randomized controlled trial done by some researchers in Buffalo. Um, and the trial found that uh, MS patients didn't benefit from this intervention. There was no reduced relapse. There was no improvement of symptoms. Uh, and this set off a flurry of activity. This is from a Canadian magazine uh, called McLean's, which has followed this issue quite closely. And, uh, and this is one of the first articles to come out afterwards. The only thing liberated was their wallets. Well, a couple days later, someone fires back in the same magazine and says, CCSVI dead? Not so fast. And this is what I want to draw your attention to. This article says, recently, the University of Buffalo researchers who stayed the first RCT okay, on nine patients. So now, again, you're thinking, okay, that was an RCT, but it's only on nine patients. Mm, not totally sure. Well. This paper hasn't come out yet. So what they did is they put out a press release and then they reported their results on YouTube. At University at Buffalo, in the last three to four years, we did extensive research investigating the prevalence 
of CCSVI in patients with multiple sclerosis, healthy controls, and patients with other neurological diseases. Our findings over the last three years indicated that CCSVI is of higher prevalence in MS patients than in controls. It has also been proposed that CCSVI should be corrected by an endovascular procedure. The procedure consists in reopening the stenosed vein in the neck. In the last two to three years, more than 30,000 MS patients underwent correction for this stenosis because of the... Okay, so I'm going to stop it there. Uh, but he goes on to describe what I've just described, which is that uh, they didn't find the treatment was effective. If this is, isn't the first case of, um, of a fairly prominent trial uh, putting its research results on YouTube before publication, it's, uh, it's one of the very first. Um, and as you'll see, interesting that it happened in multiple sclerosis, and um, I'm going to suggest some of the reasons why. These are some of the comments under the video. Uh, might be slightly difficult to see, but the first one, I'll just read it out. Do we really expect any better? Tell me that for the first three years since my procedure, I'm asymptomatic for MS because I think positively. What kind of kickback does this video afford you? I'm so tired of the lies and the hype. Another one says, neurology would come out with this garbage. I'm going to pick up on this later. Uh, I was treated three years ago and still have the benefits. So now what we see is there's a discussion. There are researchers interacting with patients. We're interacting right back. And using this forum, using YouTube, using this type of interaction has, uh, has been described by uh, Roger Chafe and some Canadian colleagues as the rise of people power. They've said, this is the first time when People have actually been able to get right in there and have been able to interact and been able to participate in the discourse right from their own homes with very little technology. You don't need a lot of training to go onto YouTube and, and to deal with this. And that having these aggregations of discussions and experiences have, um, have led to advocacy events. They've led to trying to promote the research agenda. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about and show some examples of. This idea of the rise of people power. Here's what we did. So I've described that um, there are a lot of uh, YouTube videos that explain this issue, describe it, uh, portray patients' experiences, and uh, that's where we focused our, our attention. We searched this term, CCSVI, uh, rather than searching for you know cats jumping out of boxes or something like that, which is what most people look at on YouTube. I've, of course, never watched a video of a cat jumping out of a box. But. Um, so we went on YouTube, we searched, and at the time we did this, there were more than 4,000 videos. I did this, uh, I did this a couple nights ago, and, and, uh, and there are more than 6,000 videos now. So this is about eight months after we did this. There's been an absolute explosion. You know, this, this hasn't dropped off by any means. And a few weeks ago, researchers choosing to use YouTube, I think it was a very deliberate decision on their part. So um, we looked at these videos. And the first thing we did is, uh, is decide, do they portray this positively or negatively, or can we just not really figure out? Um, and then we classified them at the bottom into uh, videos that portray patients' experiences, 
or videos that were not patient experiences. And that research video is one example. I, we would have called that a non-patient video. The overall results um, were that these videos were enormously positive, nearly totally positive. Uh, they thought this was a good theory. People thought this was a very good idea. They wanted the treatment. They had the treatment. They reported it worked well. And of these patient experience-based videos, uh, most were uploaded by patients themselves. And, uh, and of those, most were like the first one I showed you, these pre and post uh, treatment experience. So people have really gone out of their way to, um, to do a video before they had the treatment and to do a video after the treatment. And I'll show you some, uh, some examples of uh, things that happen in those videos. You can see they have a lot of views. I said the first one had uh, over 30,000 views. Well, one of the most viewed videos has uh, uh, nearly uh, 80,000 views, and these numbers continue to rise. Now, I've described to you that there are lots of these videos. I've described to you a lot of people watch them. Uh, what we try to do is, is try to figure out what's going on. What may, may possibly make these compelling? Uh, you know, why, why are people sitting down and, and, and spending a lot of time making these videos? Why have 80,000 people watch someone walk out the front door of their house? It's not trivial. There's something going on here. Uh, and I'm going to show you two ways that we sort of looked at these videos. And the first was to categorize them. Okay? So we looked at three categories. And the first we call personal treatment evidence. So what this is, is uh, people have gone on... YouTube, and they've posted uh, pre and post videos. So this is an example of a woman, she's walking around a hotel. Often they're uh, filmed in hotel rooms, um, in kind of uh, remote locations, because of course uh, I showed you that the evidence base is not particularly strong. I think you would agree with me that you would call that evidence base not particularly strong. Um, you might call it non-existent, but uh, that's a discussion for, for afterwards, I think. Um, and so this isn't covered by the NHS. It's not covered uh, by the Canadian healthcare system or uh, HMOs in the US. So people have to engage in medical tourism to go and get this. And uh, this woman's in a Polish hotel room and she's showing that she has to hold onto the wall to walk. Uh, the uh, the next one is uh, called commercial patient experience videos. These were companies that went on and described that patients got better because of their therapy. They're trying to sell you something. They're trying to sell you uh, a trip to a clinic. They're trying to sell you their particular form of the therapy. Um, but they're using patients' experiences uh, to, to try to further their commercial agenda. And there are thousands of these videos. This is just one example. Again, this has 12,000 views. The, the final type of videos, um, in, in many ways, were, were the most interesting to us. And we call these experiential video diaries. What this means is there were the videos where people did a one-off. Uh, this is what I was like before. This is how much better I am afterwards. See, doesn't this look? This proves it works. And then there were the ones where people uh, filmed themselves over months and even years. Uh, chronicling before they had the treatment, their trip to the treatment, there are videos of people on airplanes looking elated uh, because they know they're going to go and, and get this done. Uh, and 
this is is one particular example. So this guy has about 40 or 50 videos chronicling several years of his life. And there's some of his experience. Uh, there's some of him talking about, um, you know, he believes that MS is the result of this, of this condition and explaining some reasons why. Um, he uh, states many times he has some medical training. It kind of sounds authoritative when, uh, when, when he talks about this. And then somebody is he just plays guitar. And you can say, well, okay, that's trivial. He plays guitar, fair enough. But, um, but you get a sense of who these people are. And uh, while you might think that's trivial, there, there's actually something to it that over time, they put in the effort to share all this stuff with you and to get you to learn who they are. Uh, and I'll talk a bit about why that might actually increase the legitimacy of, of, of these videos. This is someone, it's the same sort of thing. She's a few weeks post-procedure. She's saying some things got better, some things didn't, some things are worse. And here's out at, uh, her out at an advocacy event um, to uh, try to petition the government to fund trials for this. So that's the broad categories of the videos. That's what's out there. And now I want to talk about this issue of what might make them so compelling. Why are all these people going on YouTube and posting videos of uh, this controversial treatment? And I'll go through three, three themes, show you some examples. And the first is that it's a visual medium. Now, I know this sounds kind of obvious, right? YouTube, visual. But what it enables people to do is it's not like, it's not like a, a health forum on the internet from 10 years ago. Uh, People can go on and demonstrate that they have difficulty walking around. They can demonstrate that they can't do their job anymore. And the emphasis in these videos is on, uh, is on physically demonstrating that post-treatment they've improved. And people who are positive about this say they've improved because of the treatment. Okay. Often the videos are filmed in the same place. I showed you that guy walking around his house. Well, we can see that he's having a lot of trouble walking around his house at the start. And then he's having a lot less trouble walking around his house afterwards. And Again, this enables you, as the viewer, to make a pretty direct comparison. Wow, it took him 10 seconds to go get across the foyer before, and now it only takes him five, for example. We expected to see people talking about symptoms, saying, uh, you know, my cognition is better, I, I, I feel more with it, uh, I have less pain. But what we didn't expect is, and I alluded to this earlier in the first video, people using words like ataxia. Um, we didn't expect that people would demonstrate signs. So this is a clinical distinction. Many people in the room will be very familiar with this. Symptom is something a patient says, something a patient says this is going on. Uh, and then a sign is a manifestation attributable to a particular disease uh, that's perceptible to an observer. Okay? And these videos incorporate both. And often people say things like, uh, see this, this is what your neurologist will get you to do in his office. So I'll show you an example of this. This is another patient pre-treatment. Hi, I'm Linda. Although the spinal lesions outweigh... I'm just going to skip forward a little bit to... Uh, I want to show you good if I'm following an object. I'm up here on the left. So she's going to test her own eye tracking. So it's not totally clear in the video, but you can see a little bit. What she's trying to demonstrate 
is internuclear ophthalmoplegia. She's trying to demonstrate the horizontal nystagmus she has uh, when she brings her finger um, to the periphery of her, of her visual field. Now, I know it's not clinically appropriate to check your own visual fields. I get this. Um, but she's demonstrating something that if you weren't an MS patient or you weren't a practitioner, um, you wouldn't know what to look for. This is a very specific thing, but it's going to be familiar to, uh, well, hopefully all MS patients because they will have had visual field examinations they, and they may well have had, um, uh, have had this manifestation of the disease. Here's another one, and it's the same sort of thing. So someone in her house, and what she's doing is standing there, putting her feet together and closing her eyes and falling over. Thankfully, she doesn't bonk her head on the, uh, on the thing there. Um, and again, I know that this isn't done perfectly. Again, now she's doing some heel-toe walking. But that first, that first example is essentially a Romberg test. Right? It's a test that many MS patients will have um, had to do in their neurologist's office to check uh, the progression of the disease or um, to see if their, you know, if their symptoms are, are, um, are, are flaring up. And time and time again in videos, people go for these very specific signs um, that, as I mentioned, would really only stand out to uh, an MS patient or a practitioner watching the video. So that's, that's the first, this idea that it's a visual medium and you can demonstrate things that otherwise you couldn't. Um, you know, you basically can't fake horizontal nystagmus. That's something that um, it's either there or it isn't. The next is how medical knowledge was dealt with. And one of the comments I read out to you earlier was about, well, neurologists would say that you know, this doesn't work, of course, because they're in it for the money and they're going to go broke if, uh, you know, if, if this takes off. And time and time again, um, people framed neurologists and framed MS societies who were, until recently, until this type of technology was available, they were the voice of patients. Patient societies were what patients had to contribute to discourse, to advocate. Well, now all of a sudden people are saying, MS societies are, are against this because they're going to go broke, because they're going to lose their funding, no one's going to give them money. Um, so obviously, you know, they have a big incentive, they have a financial incentive to not get involved in this. And medical specialties were even pitted off against each other. So neurologists were framed very ne negatively. Uh, you know, they're, they're in it for the money, whereas vascular surgeons, interventional radiologists, people who do this procedure, uh, were framed very positively. This is one, one quote from, from a patient. He says, uh, and I'm like, aren't you afraid that neurology will find out that you're doing this? You know, they might come down from the, from the upper floors in the hospital and see that you're doing this in the OR. And, uh, and, and the vascular surgeon replies, nope, I go in there. I do what I do. I see what I see and I do what I do. Right? He's saying, no, I, I just have your best interests in mind, of course. The, the final thing that comes into play here is that because the evidence base is so shaky for this, um, you can't get it covered on health insurance. So you have to pay for it yourself. You have to go to a clinic in Eastern Europe. You have to go to a clinic in Central or South America to have this done. 
And people in the videos deal with safety, they deal with costs. This is something that comes up a lot in the commercial videos. People, um, these commercial organizations talk a lot about uh, our clinic is safer than these other, other clinics and here's why. These are two examples of, of screenshots from some of these clinics. Uh, a lot of them have these kind of glossy websites. You can even book the uh, book the procedure. You can kind of go on a three-day vacation beforehand if it's in you know if it's in a nice place. Uh, they'll put you up in a swanky hotel. So here's an example of how uh, neurologists and and funding are dealt with. This is one of these commercial patient experience video. This is uh, a slightly strange organization. Um, that doesn't entirely make clear what it's doing, but uh, it promotes specific clinics to, to get this procedure at. It originates, and this is how we can correct it. I'm going to tell you exactly what my theory is, and some of these doctors out there, some of these pharmaceutical companies are not going to want to hear what I say, but this is what I believe and what every other person with MS out there believes that I talk to. Number one, the pharmaceutical companies stand to lose hundreds of millions of dollars a month, not a year, a month, because every, every patient that goes in and takes the, uh, takes the medications that I have been on, it costs uh, $1,100, dollars $1,400 a month. Uh, these medications, none of them say they're going to cure you, they're going to make you better. They all say they're going to, quote, stop the progression or slow it down. Even my uh, doctor, uh, uh, the neurologist, when I was coming here, he, he was, seemed like, uh, I hate to say it, you know, if he sees this, but it seemed like he was very annoyed that I was even doing this procedure. A really great example of how some of these issues are dealt with and, and, uh, and you know, this, this particular video is, um, it's quite well produced. Lots of camera angles. There's that uh, there's that scene where the the fifty dollar bills are rolling around in the background. You know the sinister music. Um, so there are a lot of things you can do with these with these videos, and people have, uh, especially the commercial organizations who have more resources, um, to use these videos to promote their agenda. The last aspect of these um, that we suggest really contributes to. Uh, to why so many people watch them, why so many people put them up, uh, why it was the first place that uh, a research group wanted to go to, um, to report the results of their research, is that there are all these videos, um, but they're not just patients' experiences of treatments or of conditions. They're people filmed in their own homes. Often they have family and friends behind the camera doing narration, saying things like, wow, that's so much better. Uh, I've never seen you like this. I haven't seen you in 15 years. You're a new person. There's a certain degree of, of very personal immediacy. Um, there, there are several videos in which people go and they, uh, they, they do kind of things that you and I would take for granted that we can do in a day. Like they go to the grocery store and uh, they, they demonstrate that they have a difficult time putting their groceries on, on the belt or, or, or things like this that seem superficially simple. But what we suggest is that rather than uh, you know, making this somehow more subjective and that's worse, that 
this personal immediacy is actually a, a distinguishing feature of, of these videos, something you can't do in another medium. And what it's like to have MS, people present this through their daily life. This is one, one quote. Someone asks this patient after treatment, uh, what are you going to do first when you get home? And he says, I'll be able to play with my son. I'll be able to do so much more than I ever could. Uh, continuing the theme of videos in which people are in their foyer walking out the front door. Hey, here we go. This is going to be a short video here tomorrow for Bulgaria. Uh, get a CCSUI treatment, and uh, here's, let's see how it goes. So we're going to do a little bit of a uh, bigger uh, stir up. I'll walk out the door and I'll walk back in the door. So he's saying pre-treatment before I go to Bulgaria, and I want you to watch what happens. Uh, when he gets out the door. So he gets out the front door and his neighbors are in the yard beside him and uh, and he says, oh, I'm doing my before video. And they say, oh, when are you leaving, right? Tomorrow, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm leaving to Bulgaria tomorrow. Uh, it becomes not just about him, right? From that 15 seconds of clip, we know that he has a good relationship with his neighbors, um, that his neighbors know him, they know that he's going to get this treatment, they wish him well. This video demonstrates a little bit of a community. So what's going on here? I said at the start that two things are happening. There's evidence being generated and that there's, um, these are being used for advocacy. I'll deal with the idea of evidence first. I said that I would use a very broad definition of evidence. And um, especially given the fact that you've been here in Oxford for a week learning about uh, research methods and study design, uh, you might be skeptical of my definition of evidence. And there's a reason that we described it very deliberately in this way. People in these videos aren't dealing with an I squared of 89%. They're showing you that they got better after the treatment and they're ascribing their improvement to the treatment. Okay? Now you can say this is regression to the mean, you can say this is placebo effect, um, you can say any number of, of very plausible reasons why they might have had symptomatic improvement. But in these videos, when people present their experiences, this in their minds, in these videos proves uh, that the treatment is effective. And they prove the treatment is affected, uh, is, is effective in part through this portrayal of everyday life. And uh, what we suggest is that rather than making it more subjective, it actually enhances the legitimacy of, uh, of this evidence, this experiential evidence is being presented. Because as a patient, when you go on and you watch these videos, uh, it becomes about real people like you who have gotten better from this treatment and are able to do the things that they want to do uh, better than before. They can play with their children when they couldn't before, for example. And the, this experiential evidence is predicated on both personal experiences but also biomedical practices, those clinical signs that I was showing you. Those aren't just an anecdote or an added thing. They're integral to what this is about. They're integral to how these experiences are being communicated to patients and to anyone who watches these videos. 
what's different about YouTube than whatever was available before? There have always been uh, support groups. There have always been support groups in basement rooms where people with MS, for example, could get together and describe how they're doing and gain support from each other. But there might be five people, there might be 10 people in a support group. There are over 4,000 of these videos uh, on, on YouTube. And what social media does is it allows for a mass aggregation of individual experiences of illness. And they can be used for a variety of reasons. They can be used for individual decision-making, um, but they can also be used to advocate for research priority setting and policy. And it's not only patients who are involved, it's researchers, it's practitioners, it's commercial organizations. They're all getting involved in this more and more. Uh, and we've seen, even since we first did this project, how things have changed a little bit. And people, the researchers are now using this to uh, get their research out there and to disseminate it to the public. And all this has really brought about this concern that, uh, that this isn't people power at all, okay? that this is pester power. And what's going to happen is that this mass aggregation of individual experiences is going to hijack research agendas. People are going to be forced to do research that's not for patient benefit and could even be unethical or harmful. So in conclusion, there are no hard answers here, but there are some important take-home points. Uh, we all need to realize that patients may consider this type of experiential evidence significant, even if practitioners, researchers, teachers uh, disagree with its validity. And what impact these videos have is a really difficult thing to answer. Um, but the fact that more and more are being produced, the views keep going up. There are uh, many comments on these videos. Some have hundreds of comments in which people say things like, um, wow, you convinced me to get this done and now I'm much better. Okay. Is that impact? Again, it's hard to tell, but it lends to thinking that there is some impact to this. And uh, I, I, would, I would argue that uh, the, the proliferation of all of these experiences uh, does demonstrate that there's something going on. We, we suggest that basically there are two things you can do. You can say, this is junk, this isn't evidence, I'm not going to deal with it, and I'm going to focus on, on getting the research right. But as this group in Buffalo has shown us, um, there's more you can do. You can try to get the research right, and then you can also engage with this content. Uh, you now know it's out there. It's not only out there for this treatment. In fact, it's out there for nearly everything you can think of. Um, there are just as many videos for another MS treatment um, or another controversial treatment called low-dose naltrexone. Some people will be, uh, in, in the audience would be familiar with, with this, maybe patients coming in and asking about the evidence for it. Um, there are all sorts of videos of people saying, you know, I was really bad beforehand and now I'm much better after for other treatments and other conditions as well. And what we really want to do with this is, um, is, is show that it's out there to begin to develop some ideas about why it continues to proliferate and what the effects might be. And that uh, we need to accept that there are tensions here that aren't going to resolve. Um, practitioners face these, clearly researchers face them, uh, people who make policy 
who decide whether or not a trial is going to be funded, for example, um, are all going to increasingly face these tensions as patients go on more and more and share their experiences of illness online. And this happens in controversial treatments, but uh, we're seeing more and more that it's also in well-accepted treatments, that people are going online and they're using these new media to be able to contribute to the debate, uh, to be able to push research agendas, and uh, to be able to share their own experiences and their own perceptions of uh, whether things work or not. That's everything I have. Thanks very much. I'm happy to take any questions.